Hey y'all, this is Unbound Love. The meandering conversation of two pastors. I am Gail. And I am Kelly. And today our topic is... I don't know what our topic is. It's uh, We're going to talk about kind of a lot of things. We're going to meander through this conversation. Uh, we're going to talk about racism. Uh, we're going to talk about um, uh, uh, critical race theory. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, in the Wilmington area, we are... Uh, celebrating, celebrating is probably not the honoring, honoring. Um, the um, the 1898 um, coup that took place, uh, and so a lot of a lot of things going on around that, and Kelly's involved in a lot of those things, and so we're going to talk about that today, and uh, what that what that entails. Uh, racism is um, well, it's a difficult topic, and um, it is a topic that uh, gets people's uh, ire quicker, I think, than a lot of topics that come up. And, um, and it has for generations. Uh, I am old enough to remember uh, when uh, school integration was happening and um, uh, being bused across the city uh, in order to uh, get racial balance in uh, the school systems and the riots that were taking place around that and National Guard being called in to protect schools and to protect kids who are coming into uh, places that um, that others didn't want them to be and I I think that we tend to think we tend to um, uh, white people let me back that up and say white people tend to think that we are past this like this is something that is over and done and it's you know it keeps being brought up not because it's a reality but just to stir the pot I, i can't tell you how many times i hear that you know this movie was made just to rile up the black folks um the and i'm like it's history like that, if it riles them, if it riles people up, it's because this is history, and we need to confront this history. We need to talk about this history. Um, I think that a lot of people in Wilmington think that about the things that are going on around um, this coup. That it's just a way of stirring the pot. It's just a way of stirring things up. And um, so we're going to talk about it today. I've uh, this a long intro. Sorry, yeah. y'all. Um, but we're going to talk about this today, and what does it really mean? I mean, we're, we're coming into the time where um, uh, the trial is going on for uh, the, the, the shooting of uh, Ahmaud Aubrey uh, in, um, in Georgia. It is basically an all-white jury. There's mm-hmm. one person of color uh, on the jury. And so a discussion going on around the racism of choosing the jury um, Yes, it may be a jury of the peers of the the, the murderers, and mm-hmm. I'm just going to flat out call them that. Um, and but not it's not a jury of the peers of the victim. It's it's so confusing. Um, yeah, it is. Before we get in, I do want to tell you our United Methodist stance in our Book of Discipline and Book of Resolutions. We are actively fighting against racism. We are actively participating in anti-racism. That means education. That means funding. That even means exploring reparations and other things that we can do as a Methodist church to fix the problems that we 
caused as the Methodist Church. So we are actively involved in standing against racism, um, which is part of our training as pastors. Some don't always participate, but it's part of our training as pastors. So let's dive in to start with um, to what happened in 1898 here in our sleepy little town. Um, in the early parts of 1898, there was a community right where my church is located in downtown and what we call now the north side of Wilmington downtown. And in that community, um, after the Confederate war had passed, um, the black community had started to open businesses. They were serving as firefighters and policemen and magistrates. And three of our town aldermen, there were 10 aldermen, three of them were black. And so the election came up in November, as they do. And they used this group called the Red Shirts, which were aligned at the time with the Democrat Party but were the white supremacist side of Wilmington. They called themselves the Red Shirts. They went throughout these neighborhoods in the north side and harassed people, brandished guns. Um, They stood at polling places and tried to suppress the vote. And then that did not work. Now, it did work on a state level. They were able to make sure only white people were elected to state level, but it didn't change the local level. And so... They used an article written by Stanley, who was the owner of the first black-owned Wilmington newspaper here, the Daily Record, um, where he was speaking out. He wrote an article speaking out against a debutante in Georgia who said that black men should be lynched to protect a white woman's body. Stanley said that is far from what we need to be looking at in the way she described black men. He said is unfair. And then he brought up the fact that during this time, most of the attacks were white men on black women and there was no recourse. And so he wrote an article just sharing that with his black readers and those white readers that were aligned with him. And they used that as a campaigning ploy to rally up their base. Sound familiar? (laughs) So as they rallied up their base, the crowd grew angrier and angrier. They started donning red shirts and calling themselves the Red Shirts. And they were a collective to stop the black movement. That's the beginning of the story. We'll go into it a little bit more. I just want to kind of parallel the um, red yes. shirts versus red hats. And uh, so, you know, I, I, I can't help myself. So I'm going to throw that out there. Um, you know, history repeats itself um, over and over and over again. And if we don't learn the lessons, uh, it frequently just keeps coming back. And um, so while I am certainly not a scholar on this particular topic, um, I do know that, um, you know, as as we look at, at today um, and you can see how things are, there's a direct line. You can draw a direct line from what happened in our past to what is happening today. And it is not a difficult chore uh, to see those lines that connect them, but also to see the parallels of how these things uh, are running the same course. And, and I want to, to draw that line uh, from a point of time in history that is a far more interest to me, 
which is the World War II era. You know, so I mean, you look at Germany and you look at the U.S. today and the parallels of what happened there is happening here. Um, I think it's not a difficult line to, to see. I, I also think that you can see how uh, systematic and systemic racism uh, goes right back to um, 1898 and other times in our history um, that you see the direct line of how one begets the other. That is a perfect segue to the next part of the story. Um, so after the election failed to bring them the results they wanted, um, they decided to have an actual coup. This is the only actual coup that was effective in the history of the United States. Alex Manley, along with Waddell, gathered a group of people armed with machine guns, which were only allowed for infantry at the time, so we're not quite sure how they got it. This thing called the Gatlin gun became available to them. And when they failed to do it at the polling booth, they showed up on the corner of 4th and Harnett, which was a black-owned grocery store. And the black men in the community came out to try to protect their wives and children. And at the time, they had no weapons. The black men had no weapons. The white men had extensive weaponry. A fire, a shot was fired, and someone from the red shirt yelled, white man shot. We don't know if that was a signal or if that was just to rile up more anger. When that happened, the black men, women, and children dispersed, took off, and ran and hid, some of them in the woods. Um, and 60 people in that moment were killed right there on the corner of 4th and Harnett. We now think there are possibly over 2,000 people were killed, but we don't know exact figures because at the same time, they burned the daily record to the ground. They burned several other businesses to the ground. They chased the black leadership out of the community and ended up putting them in jail. And then they took over the government. Waddell placed men in the place of these three aldermen and then named himself mayor. So they actually effectively had a coup. They burned the black businesses to the ground, and then they sent all of the black leaders out of town on a train, along with several of our black community members. So now when you walk through downtown Wilmington, where I live, you see no longer is there the daily record, but also you see the effects still today of destroying that hope, that business that was building up. And the people who had all the investment in those businesses, the people who were beginning to build the lives that would be their future for their children and grandchildren, were erased in that moment. You know, wow. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, wow. Um, it, as we think about... Um, the way, you know, so sometimes I like to think about, like, if I had made a different choice, how would my life be different? And sometimes I like to think about if my parents had made a different choice, how would my life be different? Um, and, you know, sometimes because I, I like history and because I um, have done extensive family tree research on my family, um, I think about, you know, like, my grandparents and my great-grandparents and my great-great-grandparents. And I mean, like, I, I'm, I'm 
eighth generation from Scotland. So, um, like, if if my great 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 grandfather had not come from Scotland, you know, what does that look like different? And and so this imagination of what history would look like in my own personal life if one little thing changed, and how I would be different, and how my world would be different. And it's not difficult, as we listen to this story, to think about what the city of Wilmington would, how would the city of Wilmington be different had um, these people of color been allowed to uh, continue to thrive, to continue to grow in their business, to continue to grow in their political power, to continue to grow and be uh, instead of being massacred instead of being pushed out. Um, and I, I've heard stories of a, a, a road that was here in town and um, uh, that on this road there were uh, uh, a fence posts and along this fence post there were skulls. And, uh, you know, I'm, the, the road was called uh, in head road and <clears throat> these were the heads of people that were cut off and their heads were placed on these fence posts as a warning um, you know this wasn't just lynching um, you know lynching is one thing um, but but cutting the heads off of people and putting them on some fence posts as a warning to others who might come along behind and that's not a 1800s that's a more modern history um, that comes forward in this area. How would the world be different? And would we be still fighting this battle? Would we be still be fighting this underlying current of one race is better than the other if those things were different? And, I mean, let's, let's just jump ahead to... to we are now learning this history. I mean, I've lived in Wilmington for um, more than 25 years. And it has been fairly recent that we begin to talk about this history. It wasn't until 2000 that the General Assembly stepped in. Um, shortly after this happened, they declared the white man's, they had a white man's institution, um, constitution or independence um, declaration that went to the General Assembly and was approved, and they effectively stripped the black people in North Carolina of their voting rights using Jim Crow laws and grandfather clauses. So in 2000, using this coup, a group finally effectively came back and began to share the story, began to share our history. And then after that, because of people who made documentaries with their own money, with no help, because people began to do tours and talk and, and share the story, it trickled into our school systems. And so now students and our community is able to learn about this. Now that was 2000, this is 2021, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so 21 years later, today actually, it was announced that Wilmington, the Wilmington Town Council is working towards reparations for the Stanley family and the other families whose businesses and property was burned and taken from them. That was released by the news media this morning 
And if you read the comments, if you read the discussion that's happening, it makes your stomach turn because you're taken right back to that place where the racism happens. And they keep bringing up, oh, this CRT and this and talking about this, like you said in the opening, is causing a stir. First, let's do some clarification. Critical race theory is a class that's taught in law school, not even in junior college, but in law school to look at how our laws are formed by the racism of the Jim Crow era going all the way back. That is all critical race theory is. It is not taught in our public school system. It is not something that is taught. And I also think the word theory (laughs) needs to be removed. But I do think that we need to teach critical race history in our schools more than we're doing. Because, as you said, we didn't know about this coup that happened right here in our hometown. And when I walk those streets, I see them differently now because I know. And I think if we taught this critical race history, not just in our schools, but also in our churches, we might come to a better understanding of how to love others better because we learn from our mistakes when we acknowledge them. We learn from our sins, and racism is a sin. We learn from our sins when we acknowledge them, when we see the mistakes of the past, we can live better in the future. So many comments. Um, So I want to go back to racism is a sin. Um, And I I think we've talked about this in in many of our podcasts. You know, um, love one another as I have loved you. Um, That's what Jesus says. And um, there's no way that we are loving one another as Jesus loves us if we are uh, engaging in racist thought or practice. And so, um, yes, total sin. And, um, it's one of those things that, um, like history has become whitewashed. Um, we have whitewashed it to the point that we don't recognize, uh, when we are not loving each other, that we don't recognize when we are, uh, behaving in ways that don't glorify the other. And yes, I think we are called to glorify the other. Um, Our history is taught from the perspective of, as all history is, um, it's always taught from the perspective of the winner, right? The loser doesn't get to say anything. But in, in this instance, when we are talking about race, you know, the white person, um, has their foot on the neck of the loser, which they lost only because white people said they lost, um, and have the power to uh, keep them in their place. I'm doing air quotes there. Um, And so um, history gets taught from this whitewashed place. And in so much of history, I mean, let's talk about Columbus. There's a whitewashed story, right? Um, and the story of, of the discovery of, of the new world and coming and building. And yes, the world that we know does indeed trace itself right back to Columbus and coming and white people taking over and pushing other people out. Yes, all of that is true. It wasn't this cooperative thing. I mean, when we talk about cowboys and Indians, you know, it's the, the Indians are bad, the cowboys are good, 
and we all cheer for the cowboys when they kill the Indian. Yeah, that's not really, like, that's not reality. Just like it's not reality that um, slave owners treated slaves well. You know, it wasn't like, oh, these are our family and we're just taking them in and we're caring for them. Oh, we have these little children that we're taking care of. That's not it. That is not what that looks like in history. And when we are teaching history that is not accurate, we are setting ourselves up for exactly where we are today, which is this idea, this ideal that is not rooted in reality. And so for me, critical race theory, critical race history, just true history. I mean, there's nothing racial about it. It's just true history. It is teaching the world the way that it was, the way that we got to where we are, and teaching it in an accurate way. And so, for me, it's not critical race theory, it's accurate history, and teaching accurate history. And, as the white women we are, it's an uncomfortable place. Oh, hell yeah. I <laughs> I spend so, I mean, I... I count among my closest friends some of the people who are sharing the information and doing the tours people who are leading the black lives matter movement and i'm in the naacp and it's not a comfortable place for me to be because i have guilt massive guilt i have anger i have frustration i have this almost hatred because my family is from this area my roots go deep in eastern north carolina and I have this hatred from my family. Mm. And it's a, it's a horrible place to be. And I understand. No, I don't understand. I see how people want to escape from that by erasing it. Yeah. But we can't. We have to step into the uncomfortable places so that we can make sure that we're loving, as you said, loving others as God loves them. And doing that means that I spend a lot of time being the uncomfortable one in the room. And I spent a lot of time allowing people to yell and, and sling insults at me because they're not talking to me, but they're talking to my whiteness. And I need to absorb that. I need to understand that so that I can make sure that my children and my children's children are in a different place, that I am in a different place. I... I travel with friends of color. Um, my children have friends of color. The circles I'm in um, are colored. <laughs> and I see firsthand by being in those circles how I'm looked at differently. I see when I take you know, my children and their friends to a pool in a hotel how their friends are treated differently than my children. I see when we walk into a store how certain kids are looked at until they realize they're with me. They're watched and followed until they realize they're with me. And I saw throughout the history of that I've been in Wilmington, throughout the five years that I've served in the downtown area, how the people right outside my church walls are treated so differently than the people who pull into my parking lot. I see it over and over again. And I force myself when I'm uncomfortable to walk through those places. And I think that's what we have to start doing. We have to start sitting at the table, all of us coming to the table and listening, although we're doing a lot of talking today, listening 
and being the voice to share those stories instead of trying to be like, oh, well, you know, my, my relatives might not have been that bad or it might not have been that bad. I think being defensive is not the place we need to come. We need to come with compassion and empathy, and that's difficult. So I, too, am a member of the NAACP, in name only. Um, Like, I don't want to show up in the space. And, I mean, I'll I'll admit that that's a full-on flaw of Gail. That, um, uh, yeah, I'm uncomfortable. Yeah, I... You know, I trace my roots to the Confederacy and um, at varying, well, I have been a card-carrying member of the Daughters of the Confederacy. Um, uh, In my office at home, I have a a cup that sits there with, with a pride flag in it and a Confederate flag in it. And I look at it and go, boy, that's that's two sides of a weirdness that is all tangled up in my identity, in who I am, in my my family history, my personal history, and it is it is so convoluted. And I look at it and go, boy, people are complicated. Mm-hmm. Like, aren't we all complicated? Um, and I can't, uh, uh, I can't uncomplicate my own life of all of those things and all of the ways that I feel um, and all the ways that I walk through this world. And I'm a pretty contemplative person. Um, I'm a, a, a one who is always searching my own soul and my own thoughts. Uh, for an understanding of who I am and how I got here and how do I make it better and I said that to my therapist uh, this past week I'm like that like I'm always looking at yes this was a successful event but what went wrong and how do I make it better yes this was a really good thing that happened but what went wrong and how do I make it better I'm always looking at the how do I make it better and that is just something that plays in my head all the time how do I make me better and yet it's complicated. And I can imagine for people who are less contemplative, for people who are less um, thinking, less in their own head, that this is a really difficult place and a difficult space. And I try really hard to offer grace in that. And yet, I think you said it earlier uh, in just our personal discussion ahead of this, that you have to draw lines. You have to say, this is my line and I won't cross it. And yes, there is space for you to work this out on your own. And yes, there is space for you to uh, figure this out in your own family history, in your own personal history, in your whatever. But there has to be a line. And that has to be a hard line that says, I stop at the gates of not loving people and not seeing those people as being fully human and fully created in the image of God. Amen. Amen. I think we are born into racism. Yeah. I mean, I think it's everywhere, but here where we live. And it's not just white people. Yeah. We are all, all everyone's born into racism. Yeah. So we all have to work 
to be anti-racist, not just to ignore racism or to try not to be racist. We have to do this anti-racism work, which means we're not only in ourselves trying to make that difference, but we're trying to change the world. And Boy, that's very Methodist, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> very much so. <laughs> I found the right church, the didn't I? transformation of the world. Yes. <laughs> Transforming the world. Sanctification. Moving to a better place in this world and bringing God's kingdom to this world. For me, God's kingdom, it is clear that racism doesn't exist in God's kingdom. And I think our stumbling block of getting to that place lies in this fighting against racism. I think that's one of the big stumbling blocks we come to. And I... Over and over again, as a pastor in my church, in the community, I have people that challenge me online. Social media is the worst because people can sit at their desk and spout statements at me. And I want to look at them and I want to say, how can you have so much hate in your heart? But then I remind myself that we're born into racism, that it takes an active conscious effort to change that and even in me trying to change that in myself even in my own walk there are so many times that I fall because I don't know how to do it it's a constant learning process every single moment of every single day I have some wonderful people who help me through this I put myself in spaces to help me through this but I don't know how to do it I don't. I don't know all of the ways to fix something that is such a widespread systemic, systematic problem. But I know I want to. And that's the start. And so I'm eager to find every way that I can. But I fail. And when I fail, I feel crushed and frustrated. And I oftentimes wish that I came equipped with the right answers, that I wasn't born into the system so that I had the right answers. I think that, um, so I read something the other day that a parent was writing, um, and they said, my, my child went to school and, um, uh, was told about, um, how slaves were treated and they came home upset because, um, they felt bad for the way that, uh, slaves were treated, and they felt bad as a white child for what had been done by other white people. And the parent was upset because their child was upset and didn't want their child to feel bad about who they were. And I think that that is so indicative of the human condition. None of us want to feel bad. None of us want to believe that we are a part of the problem. We all want to believe that we are beyond this. That we are not the ones who are perpetuating racism. That we are not the ones who are uh, uh, making it, making the, so the soil fertile for it to grow. Like We don't want to think that we are that person. And yet, um, I've heard it, you've heard it, um, when people say, well, I'm not racist. Um, if they hadn't, I mean, let's talk about uh, the George Floyds. 
well, if he didn't have a record, if he was guilty of something. So, you know, this, uh, Aubrey, you know, Ahmad Aubrey, if, if he hadn't gone into that house, then he would be alive. It's his own fault. And it's a victim blaming because we don't want to take responsibility for what we may be per- perpetuating. And we don't want to feel like we are part of that system. Um, I worked hard for everything I've ever gotten. How many times do you hear that? You know, I didn't, I didn't get a leg up. I worked hard for this. My parents worked hard for this. Well, yes, but um, nothing about their skin color stood in their way. Nothing about whether or not their hair was kinky or not stood in their way. Um, nothing about who they were as an individual stood in their way. Something they were born into. I'm not going to say that nothing at them as an individual stood in their way because we all know that we all have individual things that stand in our way because we're human. But it wasn't their skin tone um, that stood in their way of getting to where they wanted to be. And when we look at our African-American friends, when we look at people of color, when we look at our black and brown friends, they have to overcome that hurdle from the start. And then they get to do whatever it is beyond that. I think I was sitting at a memorial a couple of days ago. And, um, and I do not know the correlation between the two individuals I'm going to talk about. Um, but in our elections that just happened last week, a young man whose last name was Waddell was elected. I know his family. I know I, I, and some of them I am friends with, but, um, it's not that his name was Waddell as much as he is a young white man who comes from, the history of Waddell's in this community. And all I could think about is that man Waddell in 1898 elected himself mayor because he was white and because they had the power to chase the black people out of the way to remove elected black men from the government and place himself as mayor. He was allowed to do that. What if... Stanley's kids still had the history of owning that newspaper and it was allowed to thrive and grow and they were allowed to speak. What if the barber shop and the grocery store, what if those owners had children who came from the wealth that they started when they opened that grocery store, when they opened that barber shop, when they opened that newspaper? What if their grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-great-grandchildren were standing here today and had the foundation of that money, the foundation of that space that they held in this community that wasn't stripped, would a Stanley be serving in our, in our chair, as a chairman, as an alderman, as part of our government today? Would they be standing here because they had the background that the Waddells come from? Now, I don't know the relationship between the Waddell and the Waddell now. But the name just reminds me that all of the white people in this community 
that are born and raised here in Eastern North Carolina get to stand on this history of people not being elected to power and being stripped of power. Get to, get to stand on the fact that their families have had businesses that they've had and no one's taken from them. And that was hard in that moment, sitting there thinking about, well, what about me? Why do I have this privilege of being who I am? And I think the only way to overcome wanting to just look away and stand in my privilege because it's comfortable is to realize that for me in my Christian walk, I can't grow closer to Christ. I can't sanctify myself as a Christian. I can't grow closer to what God created me to be if I'm hiding inside the anger and the racism and the disconnection from others. I can't do that. I have to open myself up to the wounds so that God can heal me. Well, I think part of that too is, you know, we, we can't hide just because it's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Just because it makes us feel bad. Uh, just because it, it uh, I, I'm not sure where I stand on reparations. I really am not. Um, there's a, there's a, an intellectual part of me that thinks, yeah, it's probably a good idea. Um, there's the emotional part of me that's like, what the heck? Um, you know, uh, somebody could give me some reparations. Um, you know, I mean, again, that's my human side of me. That's just like, you know, um, um, I've been oppressed, um, as a, a, a member of the LGBTQIA community, I've been oppressed. So who's offering me some reparations for that? And, and I get that that is nowhere near the same. It's not, it's, you know, it's, it's not a, com- a, a comparable thing. And yet the mind goes there. Um, I read um, an article, it's a few years ago, um, where one of the, um, one of the uh, descendants of uh, one of the people who participated in the coup uh, who was an attorney here in town, and um, he commented, uh, and it kind of stuck with me. He was like, um, it, and it was on the the idea of reparations, and he said, if my grandfather had gotten a speeding ticket and didn't pay for it, would you think that I should have to pay for it now? And. You know, 100 years later, should I have to pay for that speeding ticket? And I'm thinking, how do you compare the loss of business, the loss of home, the loss of opportunity, the loss of life for many? Um, How do you compare that to a speeding ticket? How, How do you, in your mind, reconcile this idea that Something as uh, insignificant as a speeding ticket is the same as some life-altering, history-changing event that truly um, changes the course of history. And so when I think about reparations, and again, I, I will go back and say, I'm not sure how I feel about them. I really am not. But... I don't think that you can take the idea lightly. I don't think you can approach it lightly. 
And I think that it really takes some soul searching when you think about what is the thing that I would be called to do as a person of faith, as a Christian. What would I be called to do um, if Jesus were standing in my spot? Would Jesus bend down and ride in the sand and say, cast the first stone? Or does Jesus say, you know, maybe open up your pocketbook and give something back? I think we have the idea of atonement in our scriptures. We have the idea of sins of the Father being passed down through generations. And um, and the I and those two things always stick out in my mind that we pay for the sins of our ancestors, and we whether should. we're related to them or not exactly, and we should because not because we not because they I don't know how to say this we we pay for the sins of our ancestors we pay in what we do every day in this life. We pay for them, whether we want to or not. We pay through the. We pay because we have people who live in poverty due to the sins of our ancestors. We pay because we have this riled up anger in our society because of the sins of our ancestors. And our wisdom of our scriptures tells us the way to fix that is through atonement. And it's not just financial atonement. I think everyone's so stuck on what is the figure, what is the number, how many, is it 4,000, is it 2,000? And even our Methodist church is struggling with what reparations look like. They're trying to figure out financial reparations for the sins of the Methodist church um, through racism and other things that we've done. And But it's the money isn't the whole of that. It's atoning for those sins in our actions. And correcting the mistakes that continue to plague us today because of those actions, because of what we were taught through generations. And so I think the scriptures call us to atone for the sins of our fathers. I think the confusion comes in, what does that actually look like? And for me, that looks like speaking out against racism. That looks like providing a space where we can come together as a community and stand with those who have been hurt. That means me using my privilege, my voice, what I've been given to fight and to work hard to atone for the sins of my ancestors. And oddly in that, if I run away from it and I try to make them look better, like as a daughter of the Confederacy. Um, If I try to make it look better and I try to hide from it, I find that I still have that nastiness inside of me. I still have that sin, that, that separation from God inside of me. But every step I take to atoning, every time I learn something more, every time I speak out, every time I love someone in a better way, it actually makes me feel better. It actually makes me feel more connected to who I'm supposed to be. So I hope, my hope is for the people that I love, and that includes my family. We, I mean, racism runs deep in my family, in our churches, in our community. In loving them, my hope is in loving the racist that they find the peace that atonement only brings because Running away from it doesn't bring you peace. It just brings you more fear and anger and frustration and confusion. So 
my hope for the races of this world is that they find the peace in atoning and learning and growing closer to Christ. And we do that through anti-racism. I just want to draw the, the parallel between atonement and, um, and repentance. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that, I mean, here we are pastors. And so I think that you, you can't talk about atonement. You can't talk about how, um, how we uh, carry the sins. Um, maybe racism is indeed the original sin um that that we carry this in our bodies and in our our psyche and in our ways that we walk through the world without talking about atonement but also talking about repentance turning away flipping the switch uh, flipping our own thoughts our own and i think that this is something that we do yes as a society but I think that it starts in your own soul. I think it starts in your own body. I think it starts in your own education. It starts in being open and willing to listen and hear and see yourself in the place of someone else and understanding their walk. And when you start to understand their walk and you start to understand their difficulty and you start to compare and yes, compare what they go through versus what you go through and what they have gone through and what their generations have gone through and what their ancestors have gone through. I think that you will find that repentance and atonement uh, go hand in hand and that once you have repented, then you can find a way to atonement. Um, and some maybe that seems backwards because I think that sometimes uh, we think that we atone first and then repent. But I think in this instance, it really is that once we have found our way to repentance, once we have found that we have repented and turned away, that then we can start to consider how do we atone for our sin? I think I think you're onto something there. Well, I actually haven't really thought that through. I think it is through action that we draw closer to Christ, mm-hmm. through action that our brains start to understand. Maybe that's part of what unlearning racism is about. Through our actions, mm-hmm. our brains start to click and go, oh, that's what it is. That's what's wrong. I keep going back over and over again, especially when my heart gets broken when I look at our history. My job as a Christian is to be like Christ. I am trying to be as close as I can to this person, both God and man that walked this earth, to this brown-skinned man who was oppressed, who didn't care, who used his voice to speak up for those who were oppressed, and who did so to a point that they were hang- they hung him on a cross. He he fought so hard for those who were walking the hardest walk in this earth. And I think about if he was standing here beside me, and that's in everything I do because, you know, it's that pastor thing that we do. (laughs) I think if Christ was that, what would Jesus do bracelet that came out in the 80s or 90s? Um, If he was standing beside me, what would he say? What would he do? And this brown skinned man from a lower group in society that walked the walk, that didn't care about himself but instead cared about the people who are being hurt by others and spoke up for them that's who i want to be 
Like, I don't, I don't want to be this Christian idea that spread through the blessed pillows and the books that get put out. I want to be that man who walked in those sandals in that time. I want to rep, I want to be that now. And that means that I get attacked. That means that I get nasty emails, and we might get some from this. That means I get church members that I love dearly, family members that I love dearly, fussing at me, because this is how I see my Christian walk, fussing and angry at me because they're not in the same place as me. As a pastor, my job is to bring them to that place with me, and Maybe it's through me repairing my own brokenness, my own faults. Maybe it's through me walking this walk that I do bring them closer. Instead of just fussing and yelling and making those comments on Facebook (laughs) that we all love, instead of reacting to that email or that nasty comment that was made with anger and academic research, maybe it's me just walking this difficult walk and feeling better every day that I do, feeling closer to God every day that I do, that maybe that relative, that friend, that church member comes a little closer with me. And for me, as a white privileged woman, that's what I can do at this point. That's what I can give. Y'all, we've come to the end of our time, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that we're going to drop a few links uh, in, the, uh, in the show notes uh, for places where you can read about... Um, uh, the the coup that took place here in Wilmington uh, in 1898 and uh, a, a film that you can watch about it that's called uh, Wilmington on Fire which is just uh, an incredible film uh, and um, uh, highly recommend that you watch it uh, and get a group together watch it together uh, it will it will open your eyes to uh, a, a new uh, understanding. And uh, so we will give you we will give you some places that you can go and and read more about uh, uh, understanding history better, about uh, how how you can be a part of uh, the solution, and uh, I think that that really is where we are. That uh, how can we plug in and be a part of the solution? How can we be a part of making uh, the world around us, um, you know? It's not about going out and finding a black person and say, oh, I need a black friend. Because um, sometimes <laughs> yeah. we think that, you know, it's not just about, like, have a real friend. Um, but it's about changing. Change comes from your, you. It comes from inside you. And if you work on changing you, um, that's the best that you can do to create for the, the fertile so- soil. I can't say that. Fertile soil. The place where seeds can grow. The place where uh, understanding can grow, where repentance can come, and where atonement can follow. I think this week, one of the things that I was told a long time ago that I could do is to be aware of my surroundings. Mm. And when you're in the grocery store, when you're in a place where there are people from a race that's different from you, Watch the eyes of the people who are in the store. Watch the eyes when you're in a public square. Watch the eyes of the policemen, 
of the people who are looking around, of the white people that are standing beside you. Watch their eyes, watch their reactions. Because sometimes they mirror our feelings that we're not willing to look at. So this week is find a place to be uncomfortable and try to look through someone else's eyes by seeing what actually is happening in that space. And see what you can do to make it different. Yes. Amen. See y'all again soon. <laughs>